This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Ahead of the coronation of King Charles III, some may ask, what's the point of modern monarchies? Join me, Catty Kay, as I visit royal houses across Europe, where kings and queens are swapping palaces for apartments and finding their place in a new era. It's a surprising story featuring scandals, shamans and a royal dynasty plotting its return. Stream Europe's Royals Revealed on BBC Select. Find out more at bbcselect.com forward slash Europe's Royals. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programme. Hello. In October 1928, the novelist Virginia Woolf was invited to give two lectures at Cambridge University about women and fiction. In front of an audience at Newnham College, she delivered the following words. All I could do was offer you an opinion upon one minor point. A woman must have money and a room of her own if she's to write fiction, and that, as you will see, leaves the great problem of the true nature of woman and the true nature of fiction unsolved. These lectures formed the basis of a book she published the following year, and Wolfe chose A Room of One's Own for its title. It's a text that sets the scene for the study of women's writing for the rest of the 20th century, Arguably, it initiated the discipline of women's history as well. With me to discuss A Room of One's Own are Alexandra Harris, Professor of English at the University of Birmingham, Michelle Barrett, Emeritus Professor of Modern Literary and Cultural Theory at Queen Mary University of London, and Hermione Lee, Emeritus Professor of English Literature at the University of Oxford. Hermione Lee, women's access to education is a theme in A Room of One's Own. What would you tell us about Wolf's education? Yes, her personal story and her childhood background are right at the heart of this essay, even though she doesn't talk about them explicitly. Um, so she's a late Victorian girl. She's born in 1882 into a, a big upper-middle-class literate family, literary family. Uh, her father is Leslie Stephen, eminent Victorian man of letters, um, and she had a rather traumatic childhood, uh, which included some breakdowns and uh, catastrophic events like the death of her mother when she was only 13 and the death of her half-sister and her brother after that. Um, And Leslie was a very sort of domineering and rather self-pitying father who who demanded a lot of the women in the family, which is all part of the context of of the story. So, Her half-brothers and her brothers all went to public school and Cambridge University. She and her sister, Vanessa, the future painter, Vanessa Bell, did not go to school and did not go to university, and they stayed at home, and Virginia read and wrote and Vanessa painted. Later on, Virginia had some classes at the King's College Ladies Department uh, in classics and languages, and she read voraciously in her father's extraordinary library. Um, But she felt that sense of... Not having gone to school and not having gone to Cambridge like her brothers was a very, very strong feeling that fed into this essay. When she met the young men who were her brother's friends at Cambridge, she found them, you know, they were all very clever uh, and she found them rather condescending. Um, And 
I think that feeling too of being sort of rather looked down on by the educated men, which kind of carried on into the fact that the the literary publishing culture of her time when she grew up and became a writer was was indeed at that time very male-dominated. Just one other thing about the childhood. 24 years after Leslie died in 1904, after which the younger Stevens went off and made more of a life for themselves and she started to write. 24 years on, she noted that Leslie would have been 96 if he had lived till 1928, which is the year of the lectures and the year that she's writing this book. And she says to herself in her diary, what would have happened if he'd lived to 96? His life would have entirely ended mine. No writing, no books. So all those feelings feed into the essay and that key theme of the essay, intellectual freedom depends upon material things, comes out of the childhood. There's access to education, there's also access to money that she's keen on. Yes, she's very keen on money and she thinks a lot about money and she writes a lot about money and money is one of the great themes of A Room of One's Own. Um, she was given a she was left a legacy in 1909 when she was 27 by an aunt who she didn't like very much uh, and the legacy was 2500 from which the interest would have been rather less than 500 pounds a year but it was enough to give her a feeling of security nevertheless she wanted and needed to earn her own living and she and her husband Leonard Wolf had a bit of capital but they were not wealthy and they both needed to work and they did work very hard all their lives and she was tremendously pleased when she got her first cheque for her first review in 1905 from the Times Literary Supplement, which was a cheque for £2.7 and sixpence. At this point, she thought, right, and now I can be, you know, now I'm earning, now I can be independent. She didn't actually start making much money from her books until the period we're talking about, the late 20s. But earning the money was wonderful to her because she could then buy things. So she bought a, a room of her own with the proceeds of a room of one's own. She bought, she built an extra room on the edge of her Sussex house. So, you know, earning and having money was incredibly important to her and it's a very important part of the narrative of, uh, of the book. Yeah, thank you very much. <coughs> Alexandra Harris, um... The book Around War Zone was published in 1929, uh, but she'd published her first novel be well before then. Uh, can you tell us briskly the books before Around War Zone? Yes, by the time we get to 1929, the shelf of uh, Wolf books is, is very large. Um, she's written six novels and a really large body of essays. She's been writing essays for 25 years. This is a really established writer. She, wrote her first, her, she published her first novel, The Voyage Out, in 1915. Uh, it's a coming-of-age novel. She'd had a few mental breakdowns when she was younger, hadn't she? Yes, she had, and indeed between the finishing of her drafts of The Voyage Out and her publishing it, she had a breakdown. And so to come back from that and to bring this, this novel into the world was, was a great rite of passage. She then, during the First World War, writes slowly but absolutely determinedly a novel called Night and Day, uh, which is a comedy in many ways and plays with the forms of, of comedy and sees a young woman coming out from under the shadows of a big Victorian house and inheritance. But Wolf comes really to think of those first two novels as exercises in the conventional style in a way and she felt that she really came into her own and found her own style uh, with Jacob's Room in 1922 which is a fictional portrait of a young man and it's blown into fragments. The pages are half empty. These little shards of being and seeing and she feels that this is her way to 
evoke the world. And then we get this extraordinary series of novels through the 20s with Mrs. Dalloway and to the lighthouse, uh, really bringing original forms to the novel. Is there any way in which Mrs. Dalloway, which was my favourite for a long time, took off? If, if so, how did, how did it take off? I mean, as a piece of writing, I'm not talking about selling. Well, it showed you that you could write a book with two central characters who never meet mm. um, and that you could make a unity, that you could make a whole of that, that you could persuade your reader somehow that these are almost the same person. It's a tremendously audacious thing to do. Um, and yet people understood it. They, they instinctively under, understood what she was doing and, and how that might connect to uh, the shape that she makes into The Lighthouse. These are books that make shapes. That's part of their originality. So let's move to Orlando now. Orlando is closely connected to A Room of One's Own because it's so excited by history and gender. It tells a 350-year story of uh, one person living from the Elizabethan time uh, right up to the present of 1928. So this person can think back through time and experiences what it is to be a writer in all these centuries. And this is what we're going to get in A Room of One's Own, is this this questioning of how can you be a writer in uh, in, in each century? What, what affects your ability? to write. Orlando is told through weather and through chairs and clothes. So when Orlando, who uh, starts off male, becomes a, a woman, she suddenly finds she's got to wear corsets. How can you write with corsets on? Um, Deep question. <laughs> so it's this, this sense that material circumstances um, deeply affect the life of the mind that is going to come through into a room of one's own. Thank you very much. Can you just point out one or two more connections between Orlando mm. and one's own? She wanted to write them in the same vein, which was uh, a glittering, dashing vein, um, mixing up fact and fiction um, and getting at complex facts of, of history by writing these exaggerated fictions. Um, but like all these novels, there are, um, there are forms of elegy. Um, they're, all, they're all war novels. They're all post-war novels, in a sense, thinking, what have we lost? What's broken here? And they're all novels about inheritance. Um, how, do we, how do we find a shape to express what we've inherited and then build something new? Thank you, Michelle, Michelle Barrett. Um, she goes to Cambridge... But she's invited there by some women friends of hers to give lectures uh, in 1928. This is a great a room of one's own. Can you tell us a bit more about than I have about the background and the what happened there? Yeah, sure. the The background was in 1928. She was invited to um, the Art Society at Newnham College and also to a group called the Oddtar, which is short for one damn thing after another, at <laughs> Girton. And uh, these lectures were ab about six days apart. And what I think is really interesting about them is the Newnham one, uh, she, she casts, if you like, in a, in a very respectable vein. She's the guest of the principal of the college and her talk is hosted by her and she goes with her husband and sister and niece and... Uh, delivers this lecture at Newnham that is one of the two lectures that make up the text of A Room of One's Own. And then the following week she went to um, Girton and instead of going with her family and, as it were, being hosted by the principal, she went to this um, student society, really, and she went with Vita Sackville-West. And this was the 
moment just after Orlando when uh, Quentin Bell, her biographer, says this is the closest statement she makes about identifying with homosexuality. And certainly it's very interesting. There's um, somebody who was there in the room in 1928, Kathleen Rain, the poet, 40 years later, she wrote about it saying they were the two most beautiful women we'd ever seen in our lives and they weren't anything to do with real life. It was as if they were goddesses descended from Olympus and very sort of romantic. And then instead of going to a kind of establishment dinner, they stayed in a hotel and had dinner with the Girton girls. So they're two, two very different um, social occasions. And I think that's very interesting because it's the sign that Wolf is very carefully negotiating the sexual politics of her time. Is there anywhere where she left notes as to what she wanted to achieve? I don't think so. I mean, there are comments in her diary about what she said and how it went down. I'd have to say, what she says about Furnham or Newnham um, didn't go down terribly well with the um, people who ran Newnham because she she draws this very unfavourable contrast between a lunch that she had the following day, in fact, um, at King's and the dinner at the Women's College. And so the Women's College gives you gravy and prunes and the men had wonderful, wonderful concoctions. And this didn't actually go down so well, but it is part of her... I, I mean, gravy and prunes wouldn't go down well, anyway. No, <laughs> well, quite. But she... Uh, I mean, I think... It must be said that an awful lot of the arguments, what comes across as arguments, are actually exaggerations and they're, they're done to, you know, there are some caricatures in there which, which are done to reel the reader in rather than to be a, an accurate representation. So, so this was delivered at that time. Did mm -hmm. it have an impact at that time? Well, I don't, as, as Michelle was saying, I don't think the lectures as an event in themselves were exceptionally well received. In fact, I talked to an elderly lady when I was writing a biography who'd been one of the students at Newnham. She said the room was very hot and very dark and Virginia Woolf was a bit inaudible and she was terribly sorry, but she'd slept all the way through the lecture. If only I'd known, she said to me, that it was going to be a room of one's own. So I think, I think the event itself didn't have a huge uh, immediate impact. But what immediately started coming out of it, which was an essay called Woman and, Women and Fiction, and then the essay uh, that was published a, about a year later, immediately did have a very big impact. Yes. Hermione, let's talk about this work then. She says, delivering her lecture, she says, call me Mary Beaton, Mary Seaton, Mary Carmichael, or by any name you please. It's not a matter of any importance. Why'd she say that? Yes, that's so interesting, Mary Beaton. Um, so... There's a, there's a ballad, there's a 16th century anonymous ballad, Scottish ballad, called The Four Marys. And I need to quickly tell the story of that in order to show how it works in the book. So it's it's the song of Mary Hamilton, who's had, she was one of the Queen's ladies-in-waiting. They're all called Mary. Uh, and she's had an affair with the Queen's lover. Uh, she's got pregnant. She's killed the baby. And she's going to be executed. And she sings this song, uh, which says goodbye to the other Marys, who are called Mary Beaton, Mary Seaton. Mary Carmichael. There used to be four of us, she said, and now there's only going to be three. So Virginia Woolf takes this very ruthless, cruel 
legendary story, partly because she wants Room for Unknown to be like a fiction or like a fable or like a legend. She doesn't want it to be a set of hard facts. She wants to amuse and entertain. So that's one reason. Another reason is that she has a horror all the way through the essay and indeed when she's writing her fiction of saying I... She, when she's writing fiction, she talks about wanting to get away from the damned egotistical self. And I'm afraid she does associate that very often with male writers, uh, where she thinks there's a big phallic eye getting in between you and the light on the page because the male narrator is always talking about himself or being sort of bullying or hectoring. And in her view, that goes from Milton to D.H. Lawrence. So she wants to get away from the eye. She wants to distribute the narrative through these legendary women. Um, and... Also, I think it's very important because she has an idea of community, of works not being single masterpieces, having a single solitary birth, but works of fiction and works of writing coming out of what you inherit from your mothers, thinking back through your mothers, being part of a community of women. And that sense of a community as opposed to a sort of ego is is really, really important. And the other thing that the one other thing I'd want to say about Mary Beaton and Mary Seaton and so on, whom she gives to the names of the head of the, Ox the Cambridge College or um, the woman who's writing the new novel for women um, uh, or um, the narrator of uh, the book itself. Uh, the other reason I think she's so fond of that trope is because the, the ballad is anonymous. It's a non, and she's fantastically interested all her life in a non. Uh, who, who was writing the works of a non? She says in the essay, um, I would guess that a non who wrote so many poems without signing them was often a woman. And when you get to the very end of Virginia Woolf's life, she's writing a history of literature called a non. So I think that's the appeal of that story. Yes. The Alexandra, um, how does she play with the form of the lecturer. This is someone deeply sceptical about lectures. Um, indeed, she asked, why would one waste an hour of one's life on being lectured? The idea of people getting up on platforms and telling you things was anathema to her. <laughs> and so she thinks, let's change this round. And, and she introduces this fiction, these many voices and selves. Um, she wants us reading the essay to hear it as a talking voice um, and to have a sense of the the room this intimate room a kind of um, conspiratorial atmosphere with the young women what in are they conspiring about? they're conspiring to make a new society um, <laughs> no small thing then <laughs> yeah it's quite utopian um, and 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 lots of jokes on uh, you know is, is professor x in the in the cupboard because professor x had been addressing all his lectures to gentlemen so virginia wolf addresses herself to the women of, of Oxbridge, um, of, of Fernham. Um, and she makes this fiction of it, um, a, a fiction which tells us the process of writing the lecture so that it's all process, it's all provisionality. We're all in, we're involved, we're making it with her in a, in a sense. And it's, it's mobile. She's walking. We encounter her walking through something very like Cambridge, which she calls Oxford, um, Oxbridge. And, um, to, to walk freely is also to think freely, so that when she encounters uh, barriers, that blows thought apart too. So this physicality is written into the lecture form. Um, it's very organised, and that tight organisation into six chapters, um, Cambridge British Museum, 
looking at the bookcases, going through a literary history. That allows her tremendous digression and doodling and humming, all these things that we think, what, what's this doing in a lecture? Why doodling? And her great attempt is, let's, let's ask what matters here. Maybe the moment of importance comes in the doodle rather than in a pure nugget of truth you could put on the mantelpiece. That's such a wonderful description. I love the fact that the whole book begins with the word but. As if you, there's an interruption already, you know, she's, she's wanting to try and write this lecture, but, you know, and then she goes off on another argument. So it's, it gets you in so, so brilliantly to that thinking mind, as you've described. Michelle, Wolf talks about the difference between the ways uh, women have been depicted in fiction and the way they live their lives. And she writes about that. Could you talk about that? Indeed, because uh, she makes a very dramatic contrast between the two. And uh, it's perhaps one of the most eloquent uh, accounts of that difference that I've ever come across, actually. And she, she says that um, women are imaginatively hugely important and they have a colossally um, large role in fiction and plays and poetry. And she says that, you know, some of the most inspired words, some of the most profound thoughts come from the lips of women uh, in literature – but in real life, uh, they were. And one of the examples that she gives is that in real life, um, they couldn't read, they couldn't spell, and they were the property of any boy whose parents forced a ring on her finger. So she makes a, a very dramatic contrast between the representation of women in literature and historically, the, the empirically, the lives that they led. And there's an interesting aspect of this, which is that she she puts forward the idea that the reason why this is happening is because women function as a mirror or looking glass and that what, the way that works is that, this is what she says, that men see themselves at twice their real size because women are acting as, as a sort of a magnifying glass to them. And so she says that that gives the men... The confidence, this happens to them, you know, at breakfast every morning. And so whenever they, you know, encounter a woman, they feel twice as big as they really are. <laughs> and uh, she says, and this means that they're able to, they have the confidence because they know they're superior to half of the human race. They can go out and they can, and she, she would say, this is a typical list, you know, make laws, make judgments, civilise natives, do all these things that they're able to do because they have the confidence of being superior to half of the human race. And she, she brings um, Bennett's essay into account there, into the argument there, doesn't she, that women can't really write. Well, quite a, quite a bit of it is about people who've said that women can't write. Yes. And, uh, you know, th that's a theme in her fiction as well. Yes. Lily Briscoe into the lighthouse saying, you know, echoing in her head that women yeah. can't paint. So she was, she was out there... And doing battle from the beginning in this in this lecture. Oh yes. Can we come to her invention of Shakespeare's sister, Judith? Hermione, there you go. Shakespeare's sister. Probably Shakespeare's sister. Why did he invent Shakespeare's sister? Yes. Why did she invent Shakespeare's sister? It's probably the most uh, memorable part. It's the thing that people remember. If you say to people what do you remember about Room One's Own, and they'll probably say, Oh, Shakespeare's sister. So Virginia Woolf asks us to imagine Shakespeare's sister, Judith Shakespeare, in fact, Shakespeare had a daughter called Judith, uh, who was just as much of a genius as he was. Uh, what would have happened to her? So 
the answer uh, is that she would have been brought up to be a domestic, you know, domestic girl around the house. Uh, she would have to. She would have had to run away from her loving parents' um, organisation of an arranged marriage for her. She would have gone to London. She would have tried to get work as an actor in order to learn about life and get material for plays. Um, she would have been laughed at. Uh, she would have been picked up by the first theatre manager who came her way, who seduced her and made her pregnant, and she killed herself and is buried at the Elephant and Castle, where the omnibuses go round, as Wolf says. And at the crossroads. At the crossroads, mm. exactly. Um, and the reason for inventing this is, is twofold. So it partly gives a tragic account of the destiny of women at that time who didn't have the freedom and the opportunities and the independence of men. It's an extreme, dramatic, tragic version of that story. The thing I find many people find very moving about that story is the way it comes in twice in the book. So it comes in as this tragedy, which is part of what Michelle's been talking about, that description of the the suppression of women's writing in the in the distant past. Um, but it comes back at the very end of the essay as a kind of utopian wish-fulfilment fantasy whereby Judith Shakespeare could return uh, if the women of the present and the future all work hard and try and get their independence and earn their living and, and fulfil their imaginative potential. So the poet Judith Shakespeare could come back and she gives a very rather thrilling, emotional language to this possibility. She says, She lives in you and me, for great poets do not die. They are continuing presences. And it's, it's, it's a fantasy which perhaps, who knows, was fulfilled by Virginia Woolf herself. Maybe she was Shakespeare's sister. Yes, Alexandra. It seems such a radical idea to put so clearly that l literature is common, is made by all of us, that books continue each other. And I think that was one of the links I wanted to make with or Orlando, was that, that you remember back through the centuries, as it were, and she has this idea of every book in the present made by the past. Can we come back to the room of one's own? Mm -hmm. Why was it that so essential to uh, to have a room of your own? I mean, Gogol wrote in a pub, and we can go on and on. People wrote in crowded kitchens, and so why did she? And find she admires so them for doing it. Yes. Uh, but you'll get on better if you can concentrate. Are you sure? <laughs> Maybe you can so. concentrate better in a pub. <laughs> I go to cafes personally. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so she has she. She's all her life been uh, living in rooms that are controlled by other people, seeing women uh, having to preside over tea tables, uh, solace or entertain whichever visitor comes to the door. And how good it would be not to have to do that, to, to make your own agenda for your room. Um, and, and so she gives us this very simple image. But if, um, if a woman can make her room a model for how she would like her house to be. And if that same room were repeated down the street and across a whole society, perhaps you would have a new way of, of being. And there's something... She she mixes up her very practical, physical, bricks-and-mortar interest in rooms with the result of being able to concentrate in your room, which is to get down to your depths, to allow the big currents of imagination to scout around the surface of the seabed. There's this terrific imagery of liquid force under there, and that's what bricks get you to. Yes. I'm, I'm just being 
disruptive or a mischievous sense, really. But Jane Olsen wrote in a room where lots of people passed to and fro at the corner of a dining table, didn't she? And, and Wolf says that she has to hide her manuscript, which is yes. anybody coming. Um, and is amazed that Jane Austen managed to write as she does without showing uh, the degree of interruption she was subject to. Mm. But it happened. It did happen, uh, but once in a once in a few centuries. Are we sure it's once in a few centuries? Well, the question of all the things written and not published is also on, under this book. Mm. How how can we get at the whole world of women's writing that might not be on the bookshelf? I mean, did the Brontes the Brontes wrote with people around all the time, didn't they? Uh, and Wolf thinks she can see that there on the page in Charlotte Brontes. Yeah, but there's writing. the other two. Emily manages. Yeah. <laughs> Emily, she thinks, somehow, in by pure imaginative force, escapes the bounds um, and has this sort of great wild force of imagination that by which she overreaches the limits of her dining table. Yes, but Charlotte didn't do too badly either, did she? Wolf has enormous admiration for Charlotte Bronte. This is somebody she's learning from in every, every moment. Um, but... Is sorry that there is there on the page a kind of pleading, mm. a kind of um, a personal um, pleading to get out, to, to have more experience. Mm. Um, she she gives a long quotation, very prominently, um, of Jane Eyre uh, on the rooftops of Thornfield Hall, uh, screaming for um, screaming for freedom, really. Mm. And uh, there's this sort of big political campaign there in the middle of the book. That it's not only political, it's personal and emotional, isn't it? It's certainly, it's all those things. Mm. But for Wolf, the, the moment that the book becomes outright manifesto, it's just slightly losing, it's losing its unity of plot as a detached, impersonal, aesthetic being. Michelle? Well, I was just going to say, um, I, I think the Jane Austen example is one where Wolf's argument is a bit contradictory. And uh, she wants to say both that John, Jane Austen, you know, she's writing, well, you can go to her house and see where she wrote, you know, and she's covering it up with a blotting paper and she liked to have the door hinges not oiled so that she could hear when people were coming in and so on. So, so she makes quite a lot of that, but she she is also very keen to say, you know, Pride and Prejudice is a very good book. Why did she feel she needed to hide, hide it? And I think that the reaction of quite a lot of people to the argument is to be a bit sceptical because, as we know, lo lots, of, lots of writers use their adversity as the sort of ground swell of what they're writing and, and Wolf is trying to get away from that but there are definite um, creaks in her own argument I think It's so interesting the way she compares Austen as somehow transcending her conditions and then attacks Charlotte Bronte and lots of people have been rather cross with her about that mm. but what's fascinating about the Charlotte Bronte thing that you were describing so well was when she calls that moment in Jane Eyre an awkward break and she says the reason it's an awkward break is that she's showing her anger and she says she should, she should try and keep that down in the interest of the integrity of the book. But she herself is very angry. And one of the interesting things about Room of One's Own is that it's full of anger. She gets very physically angry. She says, my, my heart had let, my cheek had burned, I had flushed with anger when she's reading about the derogatory comments on women by Professor Von X. And so there's anger all the way through. So... What she tries to do in the essay is to turn that anger into playfulness so that it won't be upsetting to people, so it won't be awkward for people. Why does but she not want to be upsetting to people? Because she's because of the 
has real anxiety and fear about the reception. She doesn't want to be put down as a shrill, angry feminist. Yeah. She wants people to enjoy it. She wants to seduce them. She wants to make them feel they're having fun. With the next feminist essay she wrote nine years later, Three Guineas, she really let the anger show. And, and it was, as a result, very unpopular. And people didn't like it at all. But there's one other thing I'd love to say about the, the Charlotte Bronte passage, which is so interesting and strange and kind of mean-spirited in a way to Charlotte Bronte, which is that she says Jane Eyre, because of that angry, awkward break, becomes a kind of monster. It becomes twisted and deformed. And all the way through the book, there's an almost sort of quasi-scientific idea about how these forms of repression have created sort of monstrous, twisted, um, uh, awkward growths or, you know, strange forms. And then as time goes by, she has a sort of um, evolutionary idea that women as conditions become better for them will kind of like plants who've been hidden in the dark will grow to the light and become fuller forms and stop being monsters. So the idea of being a monster is one that's very, very close to her self, I think, and to her imagination. Can we go back to women's writing? Because you wrote about women's writing. Start with you, Michelle, and then come. So what is she picking out there? What she does is to say... We don't know anything about women's writing before the 18th century, which is a fairly startling um, announcement, but she says that. And, and she talks about two aristocratic women uh, in the 17th century who are Anne Finch, the Countess of Winklesey, and Margaret Cavendish, Duchess of Newcastle, mm. both very gifted people in various ways, um, both uh, noble women, women without children, and women who are married to extremely nice and supportive men. And she says, but however, they were both of them completely thwarted. And so she goes on to what she sees as the big turning point, which is the work of Afra Ben. Afra Ben, who died in 1689, so a bit later in the 17th century. And she earned a living by writing because her husband died and she was forced to earn a living by writing but she succeeded in doing that and Wool says um, all women should go and heap flowers upon her tomb in Westminster Abbey because she is the reason why it's not completely fantastic that I can stand in front of you now and say earn 500 a year by your wits you know so she's a very big big figure in the history of women's writing and then we've already talked about this a bit but she goes on to the big four who are Jane Austen, Charlotte Bronte, Emily Bronte and George Eliot. And uh, she discusses all of I mean, most of these interpretations of these lives, uh, she went into more detail in, in specific essays about them. But in A Room of One's Own, she just says um, some things about each of them. So George Eliot, for instance, was... Um, lived in isolation because she was living with a married man and so she was uh, socially excluded and this was a terrible thing to happen to a, a novelist. And in any case, Wolf says, you know, maybe she shouldn't really have been writing novels all the time. Why wasn't she doing philosophy? And, of course, George Eliot was translating German philosophy and so on. So she makes some points about all these women and then she goes on to um, the present day. And I think that's... Um, Maybe we should discuss this really interesting. That what she talks about is Mary Carmichael's book, 
um, life's adventure where she says uh, Chloe, Chloe and Olivia are w- working together in a laboratory and Chloe liked Olivia and she hails this as another very important moment in women's writing because women could be written about um, without reference to men. Thank you very much. Alexandra, can you talk about what she finds distinguishing in a woman, in the writing of a woman, that she can't or doesn't find in men? She's excited by the forms women are finding and going to find for the new sorts of books they're writing, the the new experiences that are going to need to get into literature, which is the whole of women's lives. Um, She talks about editing, altering, adapting the sentences that have been inherited from men. She gives examples. She 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 quotes some Hazlitt, um, a sentence that she finds heavy and and ponderous. Um, uh, it's about truth and beauty. Success prompts to exertion. It ends. Um, he wrote some wonderful sentences. He though. absolutely did. I mean, the description um, of Coleridge is fantastic. I think one of one of the things that emphasizes that Wolf is 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 thinking back through the fathers as much as yeah. the mothers. These are very close to her. These people, but. She wants variety. She's a woman absolutely hungry for variety. And all these women who are going to invent new sentences can change, can bring something new to what Hazlitt's done. Sometimes I'm surprised by how extreme her position is on women and men are different. One one of the things that comes up in A Room of One's Own, as it does elsewhere in her writing, is that men have these awful instincts, you know, ancient instincts, and they are... To, um, to aggression, to colonisation, to violence and war. And she sees those quite categorically as instincts that predate whatever sort of historical period that you're talking about, that, that where you can differentiate very crisply between men who have these dreadful instincts and women who don't. So she's actually very unequivocal in drawing a distinction between women and men. And and don't you think, Michelle, there's a kind of paradox which I can never quite get my head around, which is on the one hand, she seems to be saying we need to be androgynous, taking Coleridge's phrase, we need to be man-womanly, woman-manly, we need to sort of fuse so that we can get beyond the sort of sex difference and hostility. And and on the other hand, she's saying women should write like women. (laughs) And I never can quite, I don't know if you can, I never can quite reconcile those two positions in the essay. Yes, I agree. I I sort of think of it as the impossible wolf tightrope, that she wants wants women to write um, as women, but having forgotten that they are women. She more or less says that outright in a couple of places. So it is very contradictory. Best of all, if you can concentrate on being yourself, trying to say what you want to say. And yeah. she, she talks a lot about the change in a scale of values and in the way that the emphasis will fall in a different place, you know, in, a, in these new sentences and indeed in the whole structure of, of a novel. So that perhaps the, the plot won't end with the, the marriage or it won't emphasise war, but it would emphasise a moment of clarity, as she does in Night and Day. Um, or it would let uh, two things go on beside each other and you're not sure which is the, the main one. She uses brackets a lot to keep things in, in simultaneous um, relationship. She's brilliant with semicolons <laughs> and semicolons, you know, they allow, you know, they allow her the world, they allow her to say in your formerly favourite novel uh, that Clarissa felt very young 
semicolon, at the same time unspeakably aged. Contradictory things both absolutely true in her at the same time. Separated, joined. That's what she can do with the semicolon. Well, we've learned something about the semicolon and much else still, right. Uh, um, How could it be said that she paved the way for new historians to think about women's writing? This is very exciting. So she, she wants to know what was the life of an average Elizabethan woman? Did she do her own cooking? Did she have a servant? How on earth are we going to find out? And when she goes to the British Museum, she can't for the life of her find the facts. And she says the, it must be, the information must be stuffed in old drawers. Uh, and she's right. And the next generation of women historians... Uh, got into those drawers, those family archives. They went to the parish registers, the account books, and very strenuously, effortlessly, effortfully pieced together um, some facts about women's lives away from the centres of power. It's often connected with agricultural history. Uh, the, the real centre of action is in departments of economic history, which... A lot in social history as well, especially yeah, in the country. Very closely People linked. Keeping, so yes. um, Wolfe's contemporary Eileen Power starts to starts this work very potently, um, and and it's continued by women like Joan Thirsk, by Margaret Spufford, um, and in a way Wolfe has set that uh, agenda um, and made people see why that will matter so much. We're at the end of the programme now. What do you think the chief legacy of this book is? I think it's probably the most important and influential woman's essay ever written, at least for Western culture. Um, I think it's had an absolutely astonishing um, legacy and influence on women writers, on giving heart to LGBTQI uh, people of many kinds, um, enormous effect on women's publishing houses such as Virago, refinding lost texts um, and a huge effect on women's history and when I think of individual writers, recent or current writers, people like Marina Warner, Ali Smith um, uh, Carol Ann Duffy who has a poem called A Non which could be straight out of, uh, out of a room of one's own um, and Zadie Smith who has said it changed my life of this essay. That's very important. But just to, as it were, complete the point about how it treats the possibilities of women's history, I think one of the most influential things about it comes in my favourite paragraph in the essay, which is when she imagines two old ladies, an old woman and her daughter, crossing a London street at dusk. And she's longing to go up to them and say to the old lady, what do you remember? Tell me what you remember on 5th of April, 1882. And she knows that the old lady will look blankly at her and won't be able to remember anything. Uh, For all the dinners are cooked, the plates and cups washed, the children sent to school and gone out into the world. And she turns to her audience and says, all these infinitely obscure lives remain to be recorded. And they are being recorded and they have been recorded. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you, Hermione, Hermione Lee, Alexandra Harris and Michelle Barrett and to our studio engineer, Andrew Garrett. Next week, we're going to discuss King Canute. (laughs) Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. What do you think we missed out that was important? She writes with such utter pleasure about that first 
experience in uh, in Cambridge where the the meal is good, the seats are deep, the lamp in the spine is lit. And so for all of all of this resistance and anger, um she does she does have a great romanticism actually about what an educational establishment can be and what conversation in a in a room is and how could we invent a different kind of place which still lit the lump in the spine. She loves masculine romanticism. She loves the idea of a man sitting in a deep armchair smoking a pipe. She does indeed, and she's smoking herself at the at the beginning and leaning out of the window, which is when she sees the the Manx cat pass and. Um, I, th- I, I, I just think that it's not a, it's not a great rejection of it no. all. She said she has a c- couple of glasses of wine and a cigarette, and she says we were all going to heaven, and Van Dyke is of the company. So she loves it, and then she has to. I mean, this is about how funny this. I don't think we've said enough about how funny this book is. Actually, she t- she has some very funny moments, like the beadle gesticulating and showing her off the lawn, and there are lots of funny scenes, and the don who apparently breaks into a gallop when you whistle at him and there are lots of little jokes and the the awfulness of the prunes and the beef and the gravy when she gets and 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 what's left to eat at the end of the meal is a biscuit and she says it is in the nature of biscuits to be dry and these were biscuits to the core and it's just brilliant actually so she's making you laugh a lot and i think perhaps we've been too solemn and serious well i was going to say um i mean i agree with that i think the whole uh the whole bit about Professor von X is extremely funny, and uh, we didn't we didn't talk about that, which was a bit of a shame. But I mean, I think to be um, sort of slightly more serious again, I think that uh, we just touched on androgyny, and I know we're not talking here about three guineas, but there is a huge difference even between the the sort of not very convincing account of androgyny that's given in a room of one's own and the utter rejection of that in Three Guineas where she just doesn't want to have anything to do with any idea like that. She says, you know, women are outsiders and she's back to a very rigid account of the difference between men and women. Yeah, and and she's writing 38 and it's appalled and terrified and horrified about the rise of fascism. Um, And it's a real question about what are writers to do and what are women to do faced with um, what is clearly going to be a war. And there's a really interesting pick-up from A Room of One's Own in a bit we didn't talk about, which is when she's walking through the London streets... By the way, it's a great essay about London. And she sees these statues and, you know, Admiralty Arch and Whitehall. Um, and she feels, she says, alien and critical because she doesn't feel that she's been brought up and educated and professionalised to be part of that, you know, these male heroes of war. And she feels totally outside it. And by the time you get to Three Guineas, she's sort of inventing a society of outsiders. And by that time saying, let's refuse to lecture. Yes, let's not join in. One of the most famous moments is is Wolf being uh, barred from the library in in Cambridge, and and I'd just like to emphasise what it is that she wants to look at, um, which is the manuscript of Milton's poem Lycidas. And Lycidas lives in Wolf's mind as a perfect poem. She talks about it as one of the poems that she can never be sated with. So actually, I think we can't go on saying that you know Milton is to her only a kind of masculine um, tyrant. Um, so she really would like to see this this poem in manuscript. But part of what I think matters here is that she would like to look at how he revised it, how a poem is made. 
And there's something so beautiful about having that image at the centre, which she doesn't get to see, of the great laboratory, the workshop of literature, the moment where something is coming into being. And it feels like it's sort of just there, latent, and, and coming into being is what she is thinking about in this. Mm-hmm. And by the way, about male writers, I mean, I totally agree with you that, that her passion for Milton, as well as her using him as a sort of bogey figure towards the end, because this book, which is about women's writing, is, as you've suggested, Alexandra, is full of uh, Hazlitt, Coleridge, Lamb, Milton. You know, it's it's full of the, the male writers whom she's br- grown-up reading and whom she loves and writes about with a great passion elsewhere. Mm. Even yeah. William Cooper, whose great rhythms of conversation are, are set a model for how one might write provisionally and... Uh, Without coming to a conclusion. Yes, exactly. And, uh, yeah. the, well, I was just going to say that there's another point that I don't think we have discussed that, that is quite interesting. When you, when you think about how well does this argument stand up a hundred years later... And I think that the um, the material conditions have, of women have changed so much, so that there's you know now access to the professions and education and so forth. But one area that she talks about that I think perhaps is still really worth us considering is the the psychological effects of you know in a nutshell sexism you know men saying you know women are not so good at this or what what have you and the way that she feels that women writers are having to swerve away from something that they might have been able to say if they weren't aware of male criticism and that point i think is you know is something that we should consider now even though we might agree that the material conditions have changed so mm. much she's so good on the effects of discouragement mm. i think it's a wonderful book to read about what it feels like to be discouraged and you know within all our lives we've had moments where people haven't taken us seriously or have been a bit downputting or dismissive and People don't know the effect that has on someone who's trying to write something. Can I ask one other? There's there's something that puzzles me, and I want to call on my colleagues to help me understand it. And it's this concept of reality. She has this very strange passage towards the end where she says, I want you to write more about reality. And she says, "What, what is meant by reality? It would seem to be something very erratic. This is her, not me. It would seem to be something very erratic, very undependable, now to be found in a dusty road, now in a scrap of newspaper in the street, now in a daffodil in, in the sun, and goes on to, to give uh, more examples. Whatever it touches, it fixes and makes permanent. Now, the writer has the chance to live more than other people in the presence of this reality. She's very eloquent about it, but I haven't a clue, really, what she's talking about. And it's clearly not realism, the way that we would normally use the word reality. It's not being Arnold Bennett. It's certainly not. I think think this is a first go at the philosophy that she will arrive at later and write about in a a sketch of the past, which is about forms of shock that suddenly make a revelation and and you see the world whole for a for a moment and these she starts to call moments of being um and also the thing she starts writing straight after she's finished from one's own is what's going to be the waves where there is this strange feeling of these disembodied six voices and the and the landscape of the day going through the book and there is that feeling of you're not quite in the human world you're in some sort of spirit world is that could that partly be it as well 
Yes, and it's and it's such a strange addendum to this essay in a way, and yet she's created this capacious form that means that she can get in alongside her politics, this great swerving off down into the depths, into these moments of vision. It's all, almost mm. mysticism. Well, I was going to say, I think that um, it's quite important to think about Virginia Woolf, that here she's making this, so say, materialist argument, but actually she is a mystical thinker through and through, and it, it comes breaking in, doesn't it? Mm. That's where the Judith Shakespeare return mm. is so, mm. so mm. moving. I can't actually read that page without tears in my eyes. I know mm. it's sentimental of me, but I do find it very moving. Mm. And are you thinking it's Wolf coming back as Judith Shakespeare? I actually read, when I was doing my prep for this discussion, as I'm sure this wouldn't go up, so somebody who should remain nameless says that uh, Radcliffe Hall is uh, Judith Shakespeare. What? Yes. <laughs> I thought that would interest you. No, I don't you. think so. No, of course, it's I mean, absolutely you, in your, ludicrous. In your beautiful book, Alexandra, on Virginia Woolf, you uh, say perhaps it's Virginia Woolf who could be oh, thought I of as Shakespeare. I, I don't quite agree with it, actually, but it's a possibility, isn't it? I don't think she's thinking, hey, it's me. No, um, it's not. I don't know why it's, it's The futurity of it is the very point of it. Herself. I, what I think is interesting is that it does seem to occur to people now to think that... She didn't think it, certainly. Shakespeare's sister, Sittel. Yeah, no, I think it's much better if we don't know who 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 Shakespeare might come back as. It's interesting that we avoided the end of her life. That's deliberate. Yes, I know. It's interesting that you did do that. Yeah. Yes. I don't think we avoided it. Hmm? I I don't think we avoided it. I just think, I mean, I was thinking very much about the fact that like others of her books, this is a book with a suicide in the middle of it, mm. which is Judith Shakespeare's suicide. Mm. As your favourite novel, Mrs. Dalloway, has a suicide at mm. the at the end of it of Septimus Smith, and she was going to have Clarissa kill herself at mm. one point when she planned that novel, and one of the characters in The Waves kills herself. So I don't like to think of these examples as... Prescient. I don't like to think of herself anticipating her own suicide because I don't think that's right. I think that's too determinist. But I think she is very preoccupied with the idea of it. And if we're going to pitch forward to her ends, we may also um, think about the later novels, you know, rather than skipping straight to death, there's a heck of a lot more writing to go. And actually, I kept seeing the concerns of Between the Acts, her last novel, in in A Room of One's Own, and absolutely fascinating to see how she takes this idea of the anonymous woman and brings it right through to Miss Latrobe who's directing the pageant in between the acts and just disappears at the end she's not there to take the applause and is that what we want of our authors is that what a woman author might be is to not be there and therefore for the play to become somehow the product of the whole community Mm. or is the woman to stand in the centre and take the applause really interesting Mm. question I think and she's very attracted isn't she by that idea of disappearing of of being anonymous, mm. of somehow being part of what she's created and not, you know, famous author, me, famous mm. author. Mm. Although I mean, she became a famous although author. Although she, and she had become a famous author by then. Yes. Yeah, but mm. I think she loved this idea of being part of something bigger. Mm. Well, thank you all very much. That was terrific. Thank that was you. Thank you. Terrific. Quick cup of tea and then we'll go and have a gin tonic. Yes. <laughs> From BBC Radio 4, this is Breaking Mississippi. 
the explosive inside story of one man's war against racial segregation in 1960s America. I knew the state of Mississippi would stop at nothing, including killing me. James Meredith's mission to become the first black student at the University of Mississippi triggers what's been described as the last battle of the American Civil War. It's a fight that draws in the KKK and even President Kennedy himself. Can you maintain this order? Well, I don't know. That's what I'm worried about. And we must fight! I thought, wow, this could be it. This could be the beginning of World War III. Now aged 89, James Meredith tells his story. I'm public radio journalist Jen White, and this is Breaking Mississippi, available now on BBC Sounds. So crispy can chicken. Jetzt nur bei McDonald's. Der McCrispy Homestyle mit extra crispy chicken. Und neu McCrispy Homestyle Spicy Guacamole. Nur für kurze Zeit. In allen teilnehmenden Restaurants, nicht zu unseren Frühstückszeiten. Ahead of the coronation of King Charles III, some may ask, what's the point of modern monarchies? Join me, Katty Kay, as I visit royal houses across Europe, where kings and queens are swapping palaces for apartments and finding their place in a new era. It's a surprising story featuring scandals, shamans, and a royal dynasty plotting its return. Stream Europe's Royals Revealed on BBC Select. Find out more at bbcselect.com forward slash Europe's Royals. Oh! <laughs>